All right, let's turn to Ezra chapter 9 as we continue, and Lord willing, we'll finish up the book of Ezra in this study together. Ezra has now come back to the area of Jerusalem after the rebuilding of the temple under the first uh, group of captives that came back. Ezra has now come back as a scribe and a priest to be able to uh, try and assist and strengthen the lives of the people spiritually, and quite a man of God, but quite to his surprise, we saw as we got just a few verses into chapter 9 together in our last study, that Ezra came back and discovered that things were not exactly as he had wished uh, they would be back there in Jerusalem. No doubt he was hoping that as he traveled that long journey, answering God's call back to Jerusalem, that as he went back and he found the rebuilt temple and the people of God worshiping and serving the Lord, uh, that when he arrived there that he was going to see nothing but just a real wonderful work of the Spirit and everyone in love with the Lord in a great degree. And yet when he arrived, he found out that there was some sin and compromise uh, among God's people. And in fact, why don't we just, if we could to refresh our memory, reacquaint ourselves. We looked at verses 1 through 5 last time, but this is the setting that we come into here in chapter 9, verse 6 of Ezra now praying in regards to what took place. It tells us, Ezra 9, verse 1, Now when these things were done, the leaders, Ezra says, came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. And again, this is our emphasis. We took note of in our last study with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites and Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites and the Egyptians, as well as the Amorites. For, verse 2, they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed, God's people, which was again to bring the line of Messiah, and it needed to be a holy set-apart seed so that ultimately the seed of the Messiah could come through the Jewish people. That was important. The holy seed was now mixed with the peoples of those lands. And indeed, to make matters worse, the hand of the leaders and the rulers were foremost, it says, the ones leading in this very trespass of violation of the word of God. And again, the reason this was such a crucial matter we talked about last time is we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 7 specifically that God had told them as a command when they came into the land originally that they weren't to intermarry with the people of other nations from the land of Canaan. Deuteronomy 7 tells us that God spoke to the people saying this, that you shall not make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son nor take their daughter for your son. Here's the reason, God said, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you to destroy you suddenly. So again, the reason that God did not want them entering to these mixed marriages with the peoples of the land uh, had nothing to do with ethnicity or mixed marriages as far as uh, you know nationalities, different nationalities marrying or different races of people. The issue was a spiritual mixing 
which God said would not be good because if they married those people who were known for their idolatry, for their pagan worship, he references there in verse 1 in our text in Ezra that these people were involved in abominations. Again, their evil practices, child sacrifice, the immoral things they did worshiping their foreign gods. God knew that if his people entered into marriages with these individuals and were unequally yoked spiritually— that it would cause them not to turn the people towards God, but that ultimately these unequally yoked marriages would cause God's people to be turned away and to start following after other gods, that they would be prone to compromise. Again, I think kind of the best way you can illustrate that, it's always much easier to pull someone down than it is to pull someone up. For example, if you were you know, standing on a stage and you were to reach your hand down to someone else a few feet below, it'd be much easier for them, probably even a child, if you gave your hand to them, could pull an adult off of a stage and pull them down. But it would be much more difficult, it always is, to reach down and to pull someone up. Well, the same really becomes true spiritually. That is much easier for someone to be pulled down spiritually than it is for someone to be pulled upwards spiritually. And this is one of the reasons why God doesn't want, from his people's perspective in the days of Israel, for them to be intermarrying with these people that had heathen practices and didn't serve Yahweh God because their hearts would be turned away. And we see that happening throughout different times in Israel's history, and this was another one of those occasions. So this was a direct violation of the word of God, that they would be unequally yoked Uh, In their marriages, God had directly told them this, and yet though they had gone back, established the temple, and were worshiping the Lord, they started violating God's word. And this was a shock to Ezra, the fact that the leaders had actually been some of those who had began to participate in this sinful practice, breaking God's word foremost among them. So it says that when he heard this thing, we saw he tore his garments and his robe plucked out some of the hair of his head and his beard, and sat down astonished. Again, just a sign of utter grief. This is what the Jews very expressively would do at times when someone would die, as they would tear their garments and rip hair from their face. The idea was, again, the idea was like, this is just ripping me to pieces. It was sort of an expressive way of, of showing their grief and the gravity of how shocked and astonished they were because of the tragic things that were happening. And so Ezra's responding in this very way. He's just utterly, it says, astonished. He's stunned. He can't believe that after all that they've been through, God graciously letting them go back and restoring and rebuilding their temple and so forth, that they actually would return right back into the very things of disobeying God once again and violating the scripture with these intermarriages and being unequally yoked. So it says, verse 4, everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression. And again, remember, transgression speaks of willful defiance. It's not making a mistake. Transgression is always that term in the Bible that speaks of you clearly know what's right and wrong and you defiantly in an act of the will choose to just rebel against it. And so this was the case. They knew what God's word said, and it was just clear, direct violation of the scripture. And it says, so they came together and he sat, he said, astonished until the evening sacrifice, verse five. And at the evening sacrifice, he said, I then arose from my fasting, having torn my garment and my robe, and I fell on my knees and I spread out my hands to the Lord, my God. So Ezra, for a short time, he sits there 
in grief. Again, you can see the tenderness of the Holy Spirit within him as a priest, as a scribe, as a spiritual leader, and as a man of God. We've been seeing his character since chapter 7, that the fact that God's people were engaging in sin wasn't something that was just kind of a, well, I mean, that happens once in a while. He didn't kind of just see it as a light issue. It was shocking him. It was grieving him. It was it was weighing upon him very heavily to the point where not only is he expressing himself in grief, but it says he sat there fasting for a time period. And now at the evening sacrifice, as the blood is being shed, as the evening sacrifice went up there at the altar, it says at this point he now fell upon his knees and spread out his hands to the Lord. And he now begins to pray and to just intercede and and to cry out to God in light of what's going on with the transgression of the people. And again, just a beautiful example to see Ezra here at this point in time in his life. It says that he falls on his knees and he spreads out his hands to the Lord. Now, God cares more about the position of our heart in prayer than he does the position of our body. Uh, But there is something about, at times, being on one's knees, lifting up one's hands to the Lord. There's something about that we see in the Word of God that I think does something to help, in some ways, the the posture and position of our heart inwardly as far as its condition. Uh, And so Ezra, again, falls upon his knees. The idea is that just in a sense of humility, in a sense of just complete dependence, the idea is, is, Lord, this is so crucial, this is so important, he falls upon his knees. And, you know, there is something about... Uh, I hope you know it to some degree in your life on occasion about purposely getting on your knees and just talking to the Lord Uh, and and perhaps going from sitting in your easy chair or, or, you know, walking around praying and actually being in a condition where you realize, you know what, I just need to get on my knees in humble dependency before the Lord because this is a serious issue Uh, and to really bring something before God and that level of kind of you know, humility and, and, and just utter dependencies as he spread out his hands to the Lord. The idea is, again, when spreading out your hands is, Lord, I'm empty-handed. There's nothing I can do, and I'm completely dependent upon you, and I'm asking that you would work in this situation, just kind of lifting up your hands, asking for God's help. And the rest of chapter 9 now becomes his prayer, and a very beautiful prayer it is. It's a prayer of confession a prayer of humility. Very interesting. Uh, I don't know why it is, but in the Holy Spirit's uh, giving us the record of Scripture, Ezra chapter 9, Nehemiah chapter 9, and Daniel chapter 9. I don't know what it is about chapter 9s. We have these three similar prayers of those who are men of God crying out on behalf of the Lord's people in light of sin and making confession. Uh, And the interesting thing is, look how Ezra opens his prayer. He says, verse 6, Oh, my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated, he says, to lift up my face to you, my God. He says, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Now, I don't know about you, but take note of that right away. He says, I am ashamed and I'm humiliated for our iniquities and our guilt. Now, I would say Ezra just showed up on the scene, has he not? Uh, Ezra wasn't even there when they were violating the word of God. He shows up and he discovers the sin among God's people. He wasn't a direct participant in it. He had not participated in this directly himself, but he recognizes, again, which just shows you that he was a man of humility, that when God's people go through something, that there is such an interconnection that we experience things together. 
that we succeed together and that we fail together. And rather than Ezra saying, God, I can't believe what these people are doing and these ungodly followers, you know, they don't love you as much as I do. And again, reminds me kind of what Jesus gave the story, remember, of the uh, the publican and the, the self-righteous Pharisee and how the self-righteous religious Pharisee came in and said, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other people. I fast so many times a day and, and began to, again, interesting, it says that he began to talk with himself. Interesting that, that God indicates sometimes when somebody's praying, God says they're not actually praying, they're just talking to themselves so that they can like what they're saying and others can hear what they're saying. Not a sincere prayer on top of the fact that he was being very self-righteous. And then remember God says, and then the tax collector, the publican comes in and wouldn't even lift his eyes towards heaven, but he just beat his breast and said, God, have mercy upon me. And just very little said, but just a sense of complete humility before God, recognizing his own weakness and therefore just kind of humbling himself. And this is what Ezra is doing. Just a, a beautiful heart here that he associates with God's people. And you know, to me, this is a, a very wonderful heart attitude that you know God help us all to have that we would be individuals of humility and more than that that we would bring that humility into our prayer lives he begins to say god i'm ashamed i'm ashamed that we're doing this as your people lord i'm humiliated that i'm a part of the people of god and yet we're doing these things to you as your people and he says great is our guilt god verse 7 he says since the days of our fathers to this day we have been notice very guilty and for our iniquities we our kings and our priests have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword to captivity to plunder and to humiliation as it is this day. So he's kind of recounting, God, this is not the first time that we've done this before. He says, God, I'm so ashamed. This seems to be this continuous pattern. He says, since the days of our fathers, we have repeatedly turned against you, disobeyed and and failed you. And, And it's what caused us, he says at times before, to be delivered into the hand of the kings, referring to the captivity and different things they had already suffered at times before. And then he says, in light of that, verse 8, and now, that is, though we've done this that many times already, God, we have so many times exhausted your mercy and grace and patience with us through our sin and rebellion against you. Then he says, verse 8, and now, for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg that is sort of a a stable place, something to be able to have a connection to in this holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. So he's, in a sense, rehearsing and in a way to to express thankfulness towards the Lord, saying, God, despite how many times we have sinned against you and we've done it once again, he says, God, yet, he says, for a little while now, he says, verse 8, he says, you've shown us grace. At a time when we deserved absolutely nothing, he says, yet you have shown us grace in such a way to allow a remnant, at least a small group of us, He says to be able to come back here and to have your mercy that you would give us favor in the sight of the kings of Persia so that we could come back 
and we could reestablish ourselves, he says, in this holy place to kind of have a, a peg. In, and you've enlightened our eyes that we could have just some, he says, verse 8, small measure of revival. He, he saw what, what God began as just a small spark of revival. And he was thankful for that. Lord, just a measure of revival. And again, what is revival? Well, revival indicates something that was once alive that has died and now has been revived or brought back to life. You know, a lot of times as God's people, we talk about revival, we pray for revival. And the first thing in our mind is we're praying or saying that or thinking about that is seeing a whole bunch of unsafe people in the communities get saved. Well, well that's an awakening. Because unsaved people need to be awakened. They need to be brought to life. Revival is something for God's people. Reviving a person, the idea is somebody has a cardiac episode and dies. They were alive. You hit them with the paddles or you, you know, do life-saving measures and they are revived. They're brought back to life because they once had life and they lost it and that life is restored to them. So Revival is something for God's people, for those who have life in the Lord and are experiencing the work of God's spirit among them. And yet something causes that to be diminished or in some ways kind of just put to death altogether. And God, notice, by his grace shows his favor in such a way where he enlightens his people's eyes. He opens their eyes by a work of the spirit and gives a measure of revival to us. And again, were God's people in any condition that they deserved a work of God's reviving power among them? Absolutely not. It was a complete work of grace. And this is what Ezra is recognizing. He says, Lord, you showed us grace in our captivity. You enlightened our eyes. You gave us a measure of revival. You let us see some revival beginning to happen among us. And he says, for we were slaves, he says, verse nine, yet you didn't forsake us in that bondage, but extended mercy. And how wonderful, you know, even that when we're at our worst, when they were slaves, God didn't forsake them. And, you know, even when we are at times, you know, making mistakes and we get ourselves enslaved into, you know, maybe old habits of sin, or we get ourselves caught up in things that we shouldn't be involved in, that God doesn't say, you know what, I set you free and you went back and got yourself all tangled up. So you know what, you're stuck now. But instead, God's heart is the opposite, that he comes and seeks out that sheep that wanders away from the fold. And despite the slavery and bondage we can get ourselves trapped into, we can, Paul tells to Timothy that there are those who become captive by the enemy to do his will. And that God comes and he seeks us out and he doesn't forsake us. He relieves us. He extends mercy. And the reason is, verse 9, because he wants to do these very things described of what he did among his people's lives. He said to revive us to repair the house of God, to rebuild its ruins and give a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. That's what God did for them literally. And you know what? That is exactly what God also wants to do for all of us spiritually. Those are words and terms that describe what God wants to do in our lives by a work of his grace and by the power of his spirit. He wants to revive the people of God when it's needed. He wants to repair what gets damaged by our own foolish decisions and the destructive measures of the enemy. And he wants to rebuild what gets ruined. God's into restoration. God's into revival and repairing lives and rebuilding ruined individuals and ruined families and situations that need his help to bring back what he wants for them. 
and he does it out of complete grace for us. And this is what, again, is astonishing Ezra. As he recalls what God has just done for the people, that's why he says, verse 10, and now, that is, after all that, God, after that reality has been done, and now, after you've been so good and gracious and revived and restored, and now, O our God, verse 10, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken, that is, again, turned away once again from your commandments, from the word of God, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, and then he quotes what they had disobeyed. The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. Now, therefore, God commanded them, verse 12, do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons and never seek their prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children. So he says, God, after all you've done for us, and we know what the word of God says to us, we know what you commanded us. He says, once again, we are guilty. We have forsaken your commandments, Lord. We, we didn't do this out of ignorance. We willfully rebelled against you. We knew what the truth was. We, we knew where you drew the line and we stepped over the line anyway. We, we, we sinned in the light. We made a conscious choice to forsake your commands by entering into these mixed marriages with these people who were pagan that would not only turn us away from you, but more than that, would threaten polluting the holy seed of Israel that ultimately would bring about the seed, as Galatians talks about in chapter 3, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, who would bring about the redemptive plan of God. So this was a grievous, grievous error. That's why verse 13, Ezra carrying on in his prayer says, and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds, after all we've already gone through, he says, after all that's come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. That should be underlined in your Bible. It isn't mine. And have given us such deliverance of this should we again, he says, break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us, that there would be no remnant or survivor? So, again, Ezra is stunned by what's happening because he realizes that they are consciously making these decisions to disregard what God's will was for them and what God had commanded them in his word. And he even alludes to in verse 13 again, notice how merciful God is in light of their continuous grievous sin. You know, Paul talks about in the book of Romans where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And here he references the mercy of God, even in dealing with us in our sin. Verse 13, he talks about after all that's come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt and then he says, you, God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. You know, even when God did punish or discipline them for their sin and let them experience the consequences for the wrong things they did, it was always measured and filtered through God's mercy. He says, you have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. And how wonderful that God, even when he punishes even when he must correct or let discipline or consequences come upon us for our sin, 
that he always puts a restraining aspect of mercy upon it for our lives. And Ezra was able to recognize this. And, you know, Psalm 103 tells us that he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. And I don't know about you, but many times I'm very grateful for that. I mean, think of the things that we have done, the mistakes that we have made, the times we have been guilty, and how bad it could have been if God gave us the full measure of what we really deserved and he didn't, in a sense, use his restraining mercy in the midst of the consequences that could have come, how bad it really could have been or would have been, and to recognize, God, thank you so much that you punished me way less than my iniquities deserved. And, of course, ultimately in Jesus, we get the complete fulfillment of that because the Lord in Jesus does not punish us at all for our iniquities because he let Christ bear the full punishment. He let Christ bear the full punishment of all of our iniquities so that we are released from any punishment at all. But thank goodness we serve such a merciful God that restrains many times, even when we fail. It could be way worse, but he often gives us way less than what we deserve in our failure. And that's why, again, verse 14, as he's thinking through God's mercy, he says, God, and should we again break your commandments? The idea is just kind of spurning God's grace. You know, and, and I don't know, you know, if you ever catch yourself doing this or, you know, sometimes you, you see others and you're thinking after all that you've already gone through, you're going to go back down that road again. I mean, after after what you already experienced and God got you out of it, and he was so merciful, you're going to return back to that same sin or transgression again. I mean, just. It's astonishing sometimes, you know, how hard-hearted we can be as human beings. And Ezra here, he says, after all of that, God, that we would again go back and now join in these marriages, committing abominations with these pagan peoples. He says, verse 15, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. God, you are the one that's right, he says. No excuses. For we are left as a remnant as it is this day, Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. Chapter 10, verse 1 says, Now while Ezra was praying and while he was, notice, confessing and weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. So notice, as one man begins to want to see things be right with God spiritually. Ezra, the spiritual leader, he's praying. He's acknowledging the sin of the people to God and taking ownership forward. Again, he's associating with them, and he didn't even participate in this. But he's making confession, and that's what confession is, just taking ownership and saying what God says is true about what's right and wrong. He's confessing sin. God, we're guilty. No excuses, he says. And he's weeping, it's breaking his heart, he's bowed down before the Lord. And as he's praying this contrite prayer, as the Holy Spirit is moving on the heart of just this one man in the midst of this, notice the Spirit of God begins to move in this beautiful way among, it says, a large assembly of people. And as one person has this burdened heart to get right with God and see things become right with God, God uses the instrument of one man, Ezra. 
God uses the instrument of one life that longs to be right with God, praying and seeking God and bowing down in humility. And from that, a large assembly is moved by the Holy Spirit. And it says they all begin to weep bitterly. That is, they're all having a response now to the Holy Spirit. There's a brokenness coming over the lives of God's people at this time. In verse 2, Shechaniah says, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam spoke up and said to Ezra in light of this, we have trespassed against our God and we have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. We've done wrong, he says. Now yet, he says, there is hope in Israel in spite of this. And the interesting, we are greatly in error. We deserve incredible consequence. Yet in the midst of our sin, he's able to say, yet there's hope in spite of this. He was able to recognize with God, there's always still hope, no matter how big the failure has been, that God always still provides hope. And you know what the hope was? It's going to be summarized in one word, repentance. They would experience hope by their repentance from their sin and turning away from that and turning back to God. That's where he knows their hope is. Their hope is in repenting in spite of their great sin and failure, as our hope is as well. Whenever we fail, in spite of that, there is hope. And the hope is to turn away from the sin and just turn right back to God. Get right with God as quickly as possible. So he says, verse 3, Now therefore, let us make a covenant, he says to Ezra, with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and those who trembled at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Now, as as we go through this, notice the suggestion to Ezra is, look, we need to make this right. We have disobeyed God's word. We've entered into these marriages with pagan wives. We've on top of that had children with them, and we are polluting the holy seed of Israel through which Messiah is supposed to come. And we need to get things right with God by repenting of our sin and restoring ourselves back in the right relationship with God. And he speaks about here, and we'll see as the chapter concludes, that what they needed to do practically to make their sin right before God was to put away these pagan wives. Now, let me just say, you can read some commentators and they look at this, and we'll see as it's carried out in the chapter, they actually carry this out under Ezra's direction. Some people look at this and think that this is a tremendous overzealous reaction and that they should not have terminated these marriages and put these women you know, away and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, I don't necessarily know if it's fair to do that. The Spirit of God records this and puts it in the Word of God for us. I think the important thing for us to understand is that from a New Testament perspective, uh, under the blood of Christ and under the New Covenant, and we are not the holy seed of Israel bringing the Messiah forth and so forth, uh, that we are not commanded if we are in an unequally yoked relationship to put an end to that marriage relationship. Again, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, as believers, that we are not to be unequally yoked in close relationship with unbelievers. Again, we're not to you know, mingle ourselves and enter into a marriage relationships, or for that matter, I think you know, any close intimate partnership, whether it be a business partnership, I think there are more ways to be unequally yoked as one of God's people with an unbeliever or a person who doesn't live in righteousness as a follower of Christ. And so the Bible forbids us to be unequally yoked, that we're not to enter in to marriages with people who don't share the same spiritual value system as us. And again, for the same reason, principle-wise, 
is they will always pull us away from the Lord. They will turn us away from the Lord. So it's not God's will that we would be unequally yoked in a marriage relationship. That being said, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Bible gives clear instruction that if a believer, however, is married to a non-believer and they are therefore unequally yoked in marriage, whether, again, different scenarios, maybe they entered into marriage as two unbelievers and then one spouse gets saved and is now a follower of Jesus, they are not in that moment to say, okay, well, I'm a Christian now, you're not. I never really cared for you much anyway the past few years, so therefore... I've got my out of the marriage, and therefore I'm not supposed to be unequally yoked, and, and I'm going to divorce you. Or if, as does happen sometimes, sometimes God's people, even like the people of Israel here, God's people, sometimes even Christians, make the mistake consciously of, as a Christian, knowingly marrying a non-believer and making concessions and excuses and justifying and letting their emotions misguide what is true of faith and the authority of God's word. And they enter into a marriage relationship with an unbeliever. And now they find themselves unequally yoked in marriage. That can happen as well. Whether it is you get saved after the marriage or you enter as a Christian into a marriage with an unbeliever, 1 Corinthians 7 says, as long as they are willing to stay, you are now to stay in that marriage relationship and to try and make the best of it. You're not to try and end the marriage or use excuses because you're unequally yoked. You're to stay in that marriage, try and be a witness, and to try and seek to turn them to the Lord and trust the Lord's help with that, and you are to honor that marriage relationship and honor that covenant before God. So we need to be careful here. We don't ever want to take as an Old Testament example something and try and translate it into what we should do application-wise. So in some ways, you know, as we look at this, we have to consider it in light of the entirety of Scripture and from a New Testament perspective. But for Israel and God's holy seed, this was a major issue, and this was the way practically that they sought to make things right with God as a group of them, it seems about 100-plus, had entered into these marriages with pagan people that they were not supposed to be in close, intimate relationship with. So the instruction, kind of as a suggestion to Ezra, as they're being broken by God now, this man Shechaniah says, look, we need to make a covenant with God and put away these wives. We need to make things right in where we have sinned against our God and do it according to the commandment of our God and he says, and let it be done according to the law. He then says, verse 4 to Ezra, arise for this matter is, he says, your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. So he says to Ezra, look, God has brought you here to be our leader. God has called you here. He's given you spiritual authority. He has brought you here to us. You are the one he's revealed this issue to. You are the one that he is working through. So he says, Ezra, look, you need to take responsibility for this. This is your duty to answer this calling. And in a sense, he's saying, we need you to lead us through this process. Again, they respected Ezra. They knew Ezra was a skilled scribe. Remember it said that he was an expert in the law of the Lord. And they said, Ezra, look, we are in some messy conditions. We have polluted the waters. So help us. You know the word of God. We trust that you are in right relationship with God. We have made a mess Please lead us out of this. Guide us through this. Show us what to do. They say, we are with you, so you need to be strong now and do what's necessary to lead us through reconciling and getting back into right relationship with God. You know, verse 4 sometimes is a good exhortation for us because sometimes situations present themselves 
and, you know, maybe kind of like Ezra, you know, a situation presents itself to us and we kind of think maybe we should get involved or handle a situation or, you know, take, you know, on a particular thing. But yet there's the part of us in our humanity where we're like, I, I, I really don't want to get involved in that mess. <laughs> you know, I, I really don't want to have to deal with that issue. And again, whether it's a husband in leadership in our home or whether it's just some scenario that presents itself, sometimes we almost like to just abstain and say, look, I really didn't cause that. I really don't want to have to be the one to get in and do the repair job after the car wreck. But sometimes the Lord says to us, I brought you here, like he says to Esther, for such a time as this, and you are where you are, and you've had this brought to your attention. And sometimes the Lord says to us, look, this is your responsibility. I want you to embrace this. It's your responsibility. So therefore, I want you to step into it. It's your responsibility. Arise the matter's your responsibility, God sometimes says to me and you. Be of good courage. Be strong and do it, God says. And maybe that's a word from the Lord for one of you in regards to something that you're facing right now. Verse 5, so Ezra, it says, arose. He took the exhortation to task, made the leaders of the priests and the Levites and all Israel swear an oath. He made a commitment to God that they would do according to this word, so they swore an oath as they you know, made a solemn vow to God that they would do what is right. So verse six, Ezra rose up from before the house of God and he went into the chamber of Johanan, the son of Eliashib. And when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. So interesting, Ezra's praying. He recognizes it's his responsibility to do something and before he presents the path of how they're going to work this out and resolve things, interesting, you notice he kind of retreats again and goes back and spends some more quiet time, it seems, alone with God. It says, verse 6 there, the first thing he did was he went into the chamber, and he just sat there. And he, it says he kind of grieved and fasted, it seems, a little bit more. Yeah, you see, He just kind of was processing this through, no doubt certainly praying it through a little bit more and letting his emotions and thoughts kind of, you know, filter through a little bit. And sometimes, you know, I tell you, especially when you're dealing with something heavy and you realize, okay, this is, this is my responsibility, God, and I have to do this. I have to handle this matter. Sometimes the approach of Ezra there is rather wise to just go and get alone for a little bit, kind of process it through, you know, maybe sort out your own emotions, pray and think through things, especially if it's something pretty heavy and serious. So after Ezra went and spent some time alone, verse 7, it says, They then issued a proclamation throughout all Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem. Everyone had to report to the capital city. And whoever would not come within three days, so again, this was a serious matter. They had three days from the outlying areas to report to Jerusalem according to the instructions of the leaders and the elders all of his property would be confiscated, so he would have his property repossessed as a punishment, and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. So it was a serious matter. They had three days. Look, you've got three days. That's more than enough time to report to Jerusalem. If not, you're going to suffer grave consequences of property loss, and it seems in some ways almost being just kind of you know, set aside from being a part of God's people. So verse 9, all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within the three days, and it was the ninth month on the 20th of the month, and all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling 
because of this matter and because of the rain. The idea is it's, it's a serious offense. They're trembling. They're shuddering. They realize that this is something very serious that needs to be resolved. Verse 10, so Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now, therefore, he says, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the pagan wives. So notice Ezra prays. He spends some time with the Lord. He sorts this out. But then when the time came and it was necessary, uh, he didn't sugarcoat it. He stood up and he spoke to the people and he said, look, you have transgressed in taking pagan wives and great is the guilt among you. He spoke the truth in love, but he spoke the truth. And this was necessary. You know, sometimes, you know, Today, we are so concerned about being you know, politically correct and not offending everyone that I think sometimes you know, we can do a great disservice when there are certain times, and there are certain times, to speak very strongly the truth about a matter or to speak into someone's life. Certainly, we want to be loving, but there is a time when reproof and challenging and speaking the truth to someone about sin or wrongdoing is an absolutely essential thing, whether it stings their conscience or not, it is actually the most loving thing to do. And Ezra says directly to them, look, you have transgressed. He doesn't say you slipped up. You have transgressed. You've willfully rebelled, he says. You have defiantly disregarded what you know to be true of God's word by taking these pagan wives. And he says, now, therefore, you need to make confession. You need to acknowledge to God what you've done. You, you need to make confession, which means to say the same thing, to agree with God, take away all the excuses, he says, take ownership of it, acknowledge and admit what you have done. But notice, not just confession, but also the act of repentance. Make confession and then he says, verse 11, do his will and separate yourselves from the people of the land and the pagan wives. So notice, it's not just confession and acknowledging. There's also the act of repentance, which is being willing to do God's will. And these things go hand in hand. You know, when somebody is really wanting to get right with God, this is what's necessary, is there must be the acknowledgement of sin and the ownership of it and the admittance of it, but then also there needs to be the corresponding action of then turning away from it and doing what's right and making the action of separation. You know, it can almost become very easy to just admit we've sinned, to admit we're failing. I mean, how many times have, you know, I spoken to individuals, you know, let's say, for example, somebody with a, you know, a, maybe a chronic substance abuse problem, and every time they go back to binge drinking again or using the drugs again, they can tell you the hour that they're high or drunk, or if not, the very next, yeah, I know it's wrong. I, yeah, I know. I'm there. I shouldn't do it again. And they can acknowledge that they're wrong, but then the next day, they don't do anything about it. They go back into the same activity. And again, that is not repentance, and that will never lead to getting things right with God. And you can put any sin or category of wrongdoing into that. It's not enough just to admit what you're doing is wrong. You need to take action and stop doing it. You got to do God's will, which means turn away, put an end to it and turn back to God and do what is right. Separate yourself from that wrong behavior. Make the clean break. And this is what Ezra is calling for, that they would separate themselves from this 
pagan activity they had become involved in. So verse 12 describes in these last few verses their actions of doing this obediently. So then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, yes, as you have said, so we must do. In other words, you are right and and we need to do this. We need to take the steps of obedience. But there are many people, they said, and it's the season for heavy rain, and we're not able to stand outside, nor is this the work of one or two days, for there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. In other words, they're saying, Ezra, this is going to take a little bit of time. Uh, We're going to need some time because to unwind all that we've done with as many of us who are guilty, uh, it's not going to be a process of one or two days. So therefore, verse 14, what they recommend, please let the leaders of our entire assembly stand and let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at, notice verse 14, appointed times. That is like scheduled appointments together with the elders and judges of the cities until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. Only Jonathan, the son of Azahel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshulam and Shabbatiah, the Levite, gave them support. And then the descendants of the captivity did so, and Ezra the priest, with certain heads of the father's houses, it says, each of them by name came, and they sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter, and then by the first day of the first month that is three months later they finished notice verse 17 finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives so basically what you have here is it was sort of like a a scheduled appointment process with each individual it says verse 14 they said look this is going to take a while so let us come at appointed times meet with the leaders of god's people with the judges they say and the elders And to work through this situation, they describe there in verse 16 how they set apart and each of them by name came and sat down, it says, at their appointed or scheduled time on the first day of the 10th month. And this process for three months went on, it says, verse 17, until they had finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives. So there's almost sort of an interview process, which goes to show you again, they weren't just doing this haphazardly callously being unloving and cavalier this was a very serious matter and under the direction of ezra and the leading of the holy spirit and the other leaders involved each case was being individually addressed and discussed they were questioning what happened and i think probably what's the current situation there was probably questions like look okay you've taken this pagan wife uh Has she chosen to renounce her idols and her pagan practices and does she want to be a follower of yahweh And is she willing to say, like Ruth would say, your God shall be my God, and wherever you go, I will go. And if that was her heart, then then, then okay, then perhaps this is acceptable. But if her heart was, look, no, we want nothing to do with this Yahweh God. We want to continue in our practices. Well, Well, that was a completely different scenario in a different case where that needed to be dealt with with more severity, and there needed to be a separation, and it seems kind of an annulment of these ungodly marriages that had taken place that would bring destruction to the spiritual lives of God's people. But it was dealt with in sort of a a very wise, it seems, approach with good stewardship and love involved in the process. You know, it's interesting to me, verse 15, it tells us, however, notice that as they're seeking to obey God and get right with the Lord and do things in a right way to help people be restored, and they kind of put forth this plan, they're trying to work through it. Verse 15 says, only Johanan 
and Jehaziah opposed this. And they were able to rally, it says, support from two other guys. Uh, and again, I just look at that and I think, man, what a sad but characterizing mark that, you know, when God starts to do something good and God does something among his people, there are always a few that are going to oppose it. You know, I mean, I, that is just sad but true, such a characterizing. That doesn't even tell us why they opposed it. But for some reason, as they're trying to do what's right, they, oh, I don't think that's right. We shouldn't do that. Where is that in the Bible? Or, I mean, you know, all these kind of opposition type, you know, and there always tends to be those, you know, critics and those even among God's people that want to oppose what God's doing. And look, I think we to some degree need to recognize uh, that's kind of just par for the course. And recognize that even in your life, if you're trying to make something right with God or you're trying to follow God in something in your life, don't be surprised if there is one or a few who oppose, question, try and in a sense stand in the way of of what you're trying to do that you think is right in the sight of the Lord. Uh, Don't let that be something that automatically makes you question things. Just realize sometimes that's a part of the process. That uh, they don't see things the way that you see things, and sometimes you got to just move forward and and trust that that will kind of sort itself out in time. And many times it often does. You know, as I read this section, and and again the remainder of the chapter, if you are looking for a way to help sleep tonight, uh, you can read through the names, the listing there of those who are described, the individuals guilty of this sin, particularly the leaders, and how they made this separation so that they might get back right with God. As I read this, describing just this radical need of repentance from sin to be in right relationship with God, it reminded me of, and if you'll just turn there to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, and let me just read these verses as we conclude, because I think this is just a a good reminder for all of us as God's people as we hear these things and recognize sometimes, even as God's people, we we need uh, to be the ones to repent of our sin, to make things right with God and and to experience God's best rather than having the hand of God perhaps in some ways not upon us in the way it could be to bless and to help us. Second Chronicles chapter 7, very familiar verses, but in light of, again, think of what we're going through right now and the difficulties in our world and the, you know, the, the situation with this you know, virus and the pandemic that it's creating. Look, look what it says in Second Chronicles 7 verse 13. God says this to his people. To his people, this isn't to the world, to the people of God. When I shut up the heavens, God can do that, and there is no rain. Or command the locusts to devour the land, that is, there's not enough food or resources, struggle economically. Or send pestilence, that is, disease, health issues, among my people. Here's the key, verse 14. If my people, God's people, God's people, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, that is the sin among God's people, and heal their land.